Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and uh, online at kpcg.fm. Coming up on this Tuesday edition, look at some interesting headlines, including a story about the healing power of music. Pretty interesting, something that uh, science is looking at and uh, the Bible has talked about as well. Also, we'll uh, look at a historical note and uh, continue to look at this uh, great booklet, History and Prophecy of the Middle East and the King of the North and South and what the, those uh, powers are today. That and more on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio. We're at 101.3 KPCG, and uh, you can listen online too, kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com. Tune in app as well, a few other places, podcasts. It's all over. We're, we are, we're all over the place. Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. It's a global It's a global enterprise. Dwight Falk, Grant Turgeon with you here today. A great use of the word ubiquitous. Thank you. Don't hear that every day. I was waiting to pull it out. Yeah. It's like it's like a personal challenge you could take on. Like every day, I'm going to use a word that is not often used. You know, make that the goal of the day. And you have a specific one in mind. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to make sure that, or you could even twist a situation to fit the <laughs> word. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I I started something, and uh, I'm trying to make more of a habit of this. But when I'm reading a book, inevitably, at some point, I come across a word I'm not familiar with. And uh, instead of just kind of passing over it, I'm try try to go and look it up. So, but I don't know that I remember. I hope I remember. But uh, there's some really interesting words out there that you just never hear anymore in the English language. Uh, that I wonder, like out of all the possible words that you can use in the English language, what we actually use on a day day to day basis. That would be very interesting to see. We're not probably using our full potential of the language. Possibly like one percent. I have heard it advised that you should look up words as soon as you see see new ones and even just in reading in general paying attention to sentence structure and the placement of the punctuation marks things like that actually do help a lot yeah so it's uh english is a great language there's uh, uh, a couple of headlines to look at today this first one's a little bit on the uh, lighter side but uh it, i just find it somewhat interesting uh it says uh, save star wars angry fans petition to have the last jedi abandoned and remade so some people don't like the new Star Wars movie, and they've signed a petition at uh, Change.org titled Have Disney Strike Star Wars Episode Eight from the official canon. The official canon. Is that the one that just came out? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And so it's made a lot of money, but uh, I guess a few people don't like the way it went. And uh, so they're, they're trying to petition them to, to get rid of it and make another one. I don't think I don't think Disney's going to do that. I think they're happy with their whatever they made so far, $500 million or something like that. <laughs> I saw uh, someone actually tweeted the spoiler like the part of the movie that i'm sure everyone is upset about and then he's he's like you bunch of nerds get over it and do something better with your time <laughs> well the the this uh person that uh, uh rianne johnson they're uh 
uh, or, or I guess they were involved in the movie, but uh, one of these people that's commenting on it says, episode eight was a travesty. <laughs> it completely destroyed the legacy of Luke Skywalker <laughs> and the Jedi. Oh, Henry Walsh said that. Sorry, he was he's a guy commenting here. It says, it destroyed the very reasons most of us as fans liked Star Wars. And um, I thought, man, it's just, you know, it's just a movie. It's a nerdy statement. They're talking you can, about, you can see why the other person was insulting the yeah, fans. <laughs> they're talking about it, the official canon. And, uh, I, you know, it's interesting. They're entertaining, no doubt. Um, but at the same time, it, what I just find interesting is that people get really interested in certain things and put a lot of time and effort into it. And uh, you just wonder at wh- what's at, at the expense or of what else. Like, what else could you have put your time into that might have been more productive than, say, going going all in on something like this? I, You know, occasionally I'll see a movie. I have seen these. And I, when I leave the theater, I, I, I've probably forgotten half of it, <laughs> and I just move on. There's one comment here that I thought was kind of funny. They said, you have to live with the realization that you're never going to get the same feeling that you got the first time. And I think that's true because people that are, say, fans of whatever it might be, but let's say Star Wars, they, uh, they're always disappointed when a new one comes out. But I have to think, well, yeah, it's because you're not 10 anymore. You know, when you were 10 years old and you saw for the first time, it was this magical thing. And then as an adult, you think, well, you, you can never recapture that, that first magical uh, moment as a child. And I think that's probably where people are getting a little bit um, disappointed. They want to recapture that feeling. It's hard to do. Yeah, and with every new movie that comes out, the Star Wars universe becomes more familiar. There's less, uh, I'm sure there's less new things to discover in each movie. Uh, it's funny that they use the word canon. The only time I ever hear that outside of Star Wars apparently is like with the Bible or yeah. historical documents. It just shows you how seriously they take it. Yeah, and and I was thinking about that too when they mentioned canon. I thought, well, you know, people don't put that much effort into looking at the Bible uh, <laughs> or anything else for that matter. But when it comes to something that's a little more in their wheelhouse, I guess, as far as pop culture, lots of commentary, lots of thoughts, lots of back and forth. And, you know, it's, it's almost like people, in some cases, I don't think they really believe this, but it's almost like they go as far to, to think like there is an actual canon of this, you know, information that someone's finding like a secret book or something. They're just making it up as they go. <laughs> they're just movies. <laughs> Maybe they go back to like old uh, comic books or something. I don't know, but they're just making stuff up. Probably someone at this point has gone back and made an official canon or there's probably like many hundreds of fans who have probably tried to write down all the official details and record the history chronologically it's amazing how dedicated those fans are i actually saw uh that channel tnt was running the star wars movies all weekend oh yeah so i finally recorded a few of them i didn't catch all of them but i might actually see a star wars movie now you're late to the party you have <laughs> very, very late you're like you're like a 10 year old boy in a man's body <laughs> i might <laughs> i might actually finally understand what the obsession is what's the big deal with this movie <laughs> i always find it i don't know i guess i'm somewhat conflicted if i see a film and i think oh that was that's pretty good or you know and then i see a review and people are just destroying it and i think well, am i just really dumb or because <laughs> i thought it was okay but uh, anyway, so for those that are interested in those uh, movies, uh, again, I think the interesting point is just how seriously it's taken when there's a lot more things to maybe be a little more serious about. Yeah, usually movies are supposed to be like an hour and a half, maybe up to two and a half hours of temporary in-the-moment enjoyment. It's not something you're supposed to like think about for the next couple of decades and try to try to figure out how it applies to your life. I mean, I'm sure some stories have really nice lessons, but... That's also what books are for. Books are more accurate than movies, and they're actually more worth our time. (laughs) 
and cheaper. <laughs> Going to the movies is expensive, especially if you got some kids with you and you, you want, they want sna- everybody wants snacks. Mm-hmm. They're not giving that stuff away. It's no. expensive. They, they mark it up because you're already there. Yeah, what are you going to yeah. do? Yep. Uh, CBS News has this. This is from yesterday. Big story. Amtrak train derailment, at least three killed in a Washington state crash. This was all over the news yesterday. An Amtrak train derailed on an overpass in Washington state. It was on Monday morning. With some of the 14 train cars careening onto vehicles on a highway below, which was amazing. More people weren't hurt. I think they're still kind of looking. They may not have a complete number there yet, but uh, could have been worse. The crash left at least three people dead and roughly 100 injured, officials said. They're still combing through the wreckage to find uh, victims. Authorities said the derailed train cars struck uh, five motor vehicles and two semi-trucks on the highway. At this time, all southbound lanes of traffic remain closed on Interstate 5. I've been on I-5. I'm sure you have, too, out there. And, uh, you know, it's pretty busy, pretty congested anyway. And you have a train derailment, uh, you know, horrible situation, but but, uh, could have been worse, I guess. Yeah, it is actually surprising how uh, crowded and slowed down that highway does get. Um, but but yeah, you would think that those trains would hit more vehicles or there might have been more people in the actual train cars, but apparently not. That's crazy. I was actually looking into taking an Amtrak uh, train ride like last week. I was just looking into that, and then you hear something about like this. Yeah, Amtrak's interesting. Um, I don't know. It seems like they're always having accidents. Now, I'm sure they have a bunch of successful runs but you only hear about the accident so i don't i don't know too much about that but it does come up in the news the difficulty here what it looks like is uh, according to the officials the amtrak train was going 80 miles an hour in a 30 mile per hour zone there was a a bit of a turn there going over the highway and they had to slow that thing down and they said there's uh we're across interstate five it's a 30 mile per hour zone the state transportation department uh, said that while the speed limit on most of the track is 79 miles an hour, the speed limit signs are posted two miles before the lowered speed zone and then just before the zone. And so the engineers are supposed to slow those trains down. So I don't know if that's what happened here, but it looks like that was the case. You, I mean, you could be in any sort of moving vehicle, train, anything, and if you're supposed to be going 30 and you're going 80, you're going to have problems. And that looks like to be what happened. Yeah, so it doesn't really sound like uh, the train was or the engineer was speeding at first. But then, of course, uh, if you happen to miss a sign and you're not paying enough attention or you don't think you need to slow down, uh, whatever it might have been, uh, that could obviously, like we saw, cause a lot of trouble. Yeah, this was a new route from my understanding and a little faster route than normal. I mean, they've used this route for a long time, and apparently it's a beautiful route, a you know, beautiful area up there. But they changed it a little bit, and they increased the speed. And I don't know if the guy just wasn't paying attention to the signs. I'm sure they'll have their thorough investigation. But, um, yeah, I mean, people on the highway and I-5 said, you know, it was amazing how fast the train was going. They were just like, wow, that thing's really – because it was passing traffic and mm-hmm. with speed. So, uh, But, you know, you just think how odd it is for people – that get caught up in that on if they're on the road and they were right there at that time you know the timing it just has to be so it just has to be right uh for a problem like that to happen I and mean, we all drive on interstates we all drive under overpasses with vehicles above us or trains or other things most times no big deal but sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time i mean it it uh, it is amazing that as fast as we go on roads and in trains and all these things and how we're all so close together, you don't see more problems than what we do. Do you ever speed up going under an overpass or on a bridge? I, I usually do that just because of the stories that you hear about. Mm. Like one of them, 
collapsing or especially if you see a gigantic truck on top and you're going underneath it i just try to get through it there a little bit faster the thing i well i guess what i think about is if i'm going under an overpass the same time a semi is i don't like that because i've yeah. seen it happen where the the semi's too high for the overpass not too often but occasionally so it always makes me a little nervous mm. and uh i just i just try to stay out of the blind zones of those truckers because if they can't see you, like I guess those are the things that concern me the most. But And then if you're driving out west there, uh, people out there are used to it, I'm sure, but when I drove out there recently, also the idea that I could roll down a mountain made me a little nervous. And there was, <laughs> and there was nothing preventing me from just rolling right on down that hill. That I, uh, I probably went a little slower than the locals would have preferred, but uh, it was a little sheepish. Yeah, they don't. sometimes out there they don't even really have a guardrail and there's a lot of hairpin turns and a lot of blind spots out there. I've seen a lot of videos of, like you said, the truck going under an overpass and like the entire top of the truck just getting slashed off Yeah, uh, because it's just too tall. That's why they always have those regulations written on every bridge. Although if you're getting up to the bridge and you realize you're a little too tall for it, I, I doubt that those trucks are going to be stopping on time. No, that, that happened in Oklahoma City last, it was last summer, I think it was, where somebody hit an overpass and they damaged it quite a bit and then... Uh, well, just the other day, there was a news story locally about a truck. I think it was a semi or some some big truck that was stalled out and just in the middle of the highway, and it was nighttime. People didn't see it and drove right into the back of it. Oh wow! You know, so you really do have to pay attention uh, driving around and all those things, and even here on these trains. So uh, yeah, Amtrak always seems to be in the news. So I don't know, but uh, you know, if if you don't have any problems, it seems like it'd be a pretty nice way to travel. But uh, and it's, I mean, people loved it. The idea of getting somewhere going 80 miles an hour in a train. They have high speed trains in a lot of places. I guess it just depends on if the track can handle it and if you, you know, the, the conductor can handle it the right way. Yeah, we often don't think about how dangerous it is to be able to travel at high speeds in these different types of vehicles, whether it's a train or a car or a plane. It's like yeah. just being in a missile launching across to the other side of the world sometimes. I mean, it, I always think of like bumper cars when you're in a car and you're all driving really close to each other and you're going at high speeds and yet it's expected that no one ever touches any of the other vehicles that definitely a lot has to happen so that that does that so that there aren't any crashes you have to trust the other people yeah yeah it's uh well i don't know if i told you my plane story actually when we were flying we were we were flying from uh, oakland to SeaTech in seattle so right along the coast and mountains and it was really really uh a lot of turbulence that particular day, more than I've ever experienced. I don't know how that relates to turbulence in general, but more than I've experienced. <laughs> so we were really bouncing around a fair bit, and you know, and they started getting a little nervous about it. And so I, I don't know, I, I tend to look at the flight attendants, the people that are always in the plane, like, does this bother you or is this par for the course? And they uh, all sat down and buckled themselves in. So I was like, well, this doesn't <laughs> seem great. And, uh, and then the pilot came on. Well, the pilot came on to say something, but I think he turned on his... Uh, speaker too quickly because we hit a big bump and he went oh but it, you could hear him say that and so <laughs> we're all looking around and and he comes on and he's like i've made an executive decision and we're all you know i'm like what and we canceled the drink service so <laughs> i was like well that's okay i don't mind that but I, you know when he said i've made an executive decision i'm thinking we're gonna put it down in the mountains like what are we gonna do here <laughs> so it was it turned out okay but i was glad i was glad to get on the ground and get both feet on the ground and some people were nervous um my daughter thought it was great. She thought it was like a roller coaster. <laughs> Just too too naive to understand that this could be a problem, but uh, it was okay. But yeah, like you say, anytime you're flying, 
you do have that realization that that's you know uh, we're we're in a precarious position here. Yeah, it sounds like that pilot might have over dramatized the decision a little bit much. That reminds me, uh, a month ago, my my dad, brother, and I were on a road trip, and <laughs> my dad was sitting in the front seat reading, and then all of a sudden he's like, he's like, guys can you guys just stop what you're doing and listen real quick? And so we just are totally silent. And he just asked us this really trivial, random question. We we thought we were going to get corrected or something like that. And so ever since, like, that's been our running joke. Guys, 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 can you stop and listen? Stop what you're doing and listen. This is really important. Then you just say yeah. something that's not that important. I need everyone's attention. Yeah. And then come up with something that's just sort of <laughs> so-so. Uh, but uh, anyway, quite a uh, situation out there in Seattle uh, area. I guess it wasn't quite Seattle, but but close to that. Uh, here's a story from the College Fix. That's uh, we see a lot of this lately. Uh, university teaches white employees how to overcome discomfort of being white. Uh, I feel quite comfortable. I don't have that problem at all. <laughs> you look quite comfortable over there. A two-day professional development conference had re- held recently at the University of Michigan included a training session that aimed to help white employees deal with their whiteness so they could become better equipped to fight for social justice causes. Okay. Uh, participants who took part in the Conversations on Whiteness session <laughs> held December 5th during the university students' uh, Life Professional develop co- Development Conference were taught to recognize the difficulties they face when talking about social justice issues related to their white identity, explore this discomfort, and devise ways to work through it. So this is what some of the universities are teaching to prepare young people for their careers. It made me think about something uh, actually Abraham Lincoln said. Um, he was considering the issue of slavery, which he was dealing with at the time. And he commented that anyone who was for the freedom of the slaves would not be for the weakening of any people, including whites, because there was some controversy about that. And I think that's just a good thing to remember, you know, because if because if the goal in society is true equality, then no group should be pushed down. No group should be embarrassed or shamed. None of them. But we don't see that happening today. We've heard a lot in the news recently about white supremacy, but uh, really those who are talking about that the most tend to be black supremacists. There are people who truly will not stop until it's totally flipped. I mean, in the past couple hundred years ago, there was slavery and the whites in this country had an advantage over the blacks. And now they're trying to just totally reverse that. They think that's the only way to, I guess they say, make reparations for what happened in the past. But that's very true. It, it shouldn't be a matter of one race being supreme over the others. We need to be side by side and realize that we're all human beings first. I mean, what, what do they expect white people to do, spray paint themselves a different color? I mean, if, if white people had so much privilege and transge- uh, transracialism is a thing now, why wouldn't everyone just claim to be white if there were all these privileges you could get from that? Yeah, it's really flipped on its head. But I think uh, looking at uh, President Lincoln, who... Uh, probably was the greatest president the U.S. has seen, uh, you know, and he thought deeply about these things. He realized that equality has to be, if it's true equality, it has to be for everybody, which isn't the pushing down of any anybody. And so you don't see that. You don't see it. You don't see enough talked about there with President Lincoln and some of the things that he did. And even, you know, he, bring, he brings out, if you study some of that history, how uh, Thomas Jefferson, who gets a lot of flack these days, and he's not alive to defend himself, by the way, uh, because he did have uh, some slaves. They, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote language into you know certain documents in the U.S., really hoping for, and in, his, in, in other things he did, hoping for the end of it, hoping for the end of slavery. 
he wanted that. That was a goal that he had. And I think the thing that's easy to think of or, or to, to think here, being alive now, is to look back and think, why didn't they just get rid of it? Well, it was so intertwined in society, it took a while to get rid of it. They may have wanted to get rid of it, a lot of people, but you can't just snap your fingers and undo an entire society. It ultimately took a civil war. So to point the finger at somebody and say, well, you know, they didn't, they didn't uh, get rid of the entire society. Well, how could you do that, though? They knew it would take a few generations. Exactly. I mean, consider what Abraham Lincoln went through where uh, he felt every day like he was responsible for the 600,000 deaths that were caused in the civil or that took place in the Civil War. And he eventually got killed for it. Even before all that happened, he had to vastly expand the powers of the federal government to even uh, try to force the South to stay in the Union. So he had to do a lot of things. He had to take drastic action that a lot of these social justice warriors today would never take. They might like to say that, oh, we're for equality, but would you be for equality if it meant getting assassinated? Would these people really go as far as it took, like Abraham Lincoln did, to truly make a difference and not just talk about how righteous they are? Yeah, and uh, you know, President Lincoln knew that in dealing with the, the problem of slavery at the time, that it was a very complex situation to deal with because of the threat of war and violence and such. And he said uh, that the question was too great for him. It was too great for man. They needed God, God's solution and God's answer to it. And um, you don't hear any of that today either when, when people are talking about how to make things fair, how to make things equal. Well, if it's man's idea on how to make things equal, it's not going to be a great system. You don't hear anybody talking about how, what does God say about making things equal? What is, what is his rules? What are his laws about it? And, and President Lincoln, you have to credit him for at least understanding that a massive question like that or a massive issue like that is too much for a man to decide. You have to go to God to figure that out. Yeah, and he did write about that, how uh, there were religious leaders in the South who quoted scriptures saying that slavery is supported by what the Bible says, and then... Uh, there were religious leaders in the North who quoted the exact same scriptures and said, look, this is this this proves that slavery needs to be abolished. And so even even the religious leaders were divided on the issue. And he had to have a lot of extra help from God to even figure that thing out. Yeah, that was one of the, that was probably the overriding great thing about President Lincoln was he did have a a, rea- a certain realization that things were beyond him. And he needed he needed to understand God's will the best that he could. So anyway, that's uh, it. Just keeps happening in this uh, society today, where there's all this talk of equality, and yet uh, it's not equality. It's it's trying to put down one group and raise another one. So uh, never never works. Uh, here's a much more positive story. This is really interesting. Uh, it's it's always fascinating to see science and the way that they start to look at certain things, and then lo and behold, it's something the Bible talked about many years ago. This is from uh, AP. It's about the uh, healing power of music. They say the challenge that they have is harnessing music to do more than comfort the sick. They know that it does help people, but they're they're trying to figure out how. Now moving beyond programs like uh, one in uh, Georgetown, uh, where what they do basically is people that are sick and going through things, they'll have uh, musicians come around and play for them, and it makes them feel better. Uh, but they're trying to f- go beyond that to figure out how they can have musical therapy and things like that. And get in, they want to get into the brain's circuitry and figure out why does it make people feel better. 
if it's good music. Bad music <laughs> does the opposite, so that's good to remember, too. They say the brain is able to compensate for other deficits sometimes by using music to communicate. Uh, to turn that ability into a successful therapy, they say it would be a really good thing to know which parts of the brain are still intact to be called into action, to know the circuits well enough to know the backup plan. Scientists um, aren't starting from scratch. Learning to play an instrument, for example, sharpens how the brain processes sound and can improve children's reading and other school skills. Stroke survivors who can't speak sometimes can sing, and music therapy can help them retain brain pathways to communicate. Similarly, Parkinson's patients sometimes walk better to the right beat. So they know it helps people, but they just don't quite understand how it all works. But it's fascinating to look at. And we've heard it said a lot of times uh, that humans are just by nature musical beings and and how we all seem to take to music in a unique way. There's definitely can be a strong case made that music should be uh, a mandatory class in every school and not just an elective course like it often is just because of all those benefits like you said and just um even even the other benefits you gain from practicing uh, an instrument or learning to listen to the finer details of the music and understand what you're hearing those types of things really do enrich the mind and they go a long way uh just to so many benefits like you just described yeah they're they know that it helps but they're trying to figure out how do you make it even more helpful they say, unlike music therapy, which works one-on-one toward individual outcomes, the Arts and Humanities Program at Georgetown Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center lets musicians and residents play throughout the hospital. So they can kind of walk around and play the, the cello and some other instruments. Uh, palliative care nurses often seek Vance, he's a cellist, for patients anxious or in pain. And uh, she may watch monitors matching a tune's tempo to heart rate and then gradually slowing it so they calm down. Sometimes she plays for the dying, choosing a gently uh, rhythmic background and never a song that might be familiar. Uh, apparently that works better to calm people. Uh, Julia Langley, who directs Georgetown's program, wants research into the type and dose of music for different health situations. She said, if we can study the arts in the same way that science studies medication and other therapeutics, I think we will be doing so much good. And it makes me think of First Samuel sixteen twenty three, where it says, And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand, and so Saul was refreshed, and he was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. So that's been going on for a long time, helping people to feel better with the right type of music. Even going so far as to cast out a demon in someone's mind. I mean, that that, that is incredibly powerful, and if they can learn to harness that as an effective tool, just think of how many people could be helped. There are so many people who are dealing with excruciating pain every day, whether it's physical or some sort of trauma from abuse or uh, military experiences, uh, and all of them could really be benefited a lot from something like this. Yeah, I think there's studies I've seen over the years where if people listen to uh, Mozart in particular, it helps them with maybe they're studying and helps the brain to function at a little higher level. And so they're trying to figure out why that is. You do notice, though, I have to draw attention to the fact that when they're going around trying to calm people down, they're using the cello. They're not using the electric guitar and the drums. <laughs> so <laughs> take that for what it's worth or an electronic beat of some kind. There are particular types of music that work well and other parts that uh, they may get you a little more amped up, but... Um, they might have some negative effects there as well. Well, there's a lot of good write-ups on uh, 
PCOG.org about uh, music. Uh, Ryan Malone, who hosts Music for Life, has written some of those and and did a great job of really getting into just the, you know, okay, you have to evaluate what's the spirit of the music. Like, how does it make you feel? And if it, a lot of music out there can make you feel angry and hostile. You often see that, you know, if you're in town and you're driving and you hear like this this beat coming out of a car and you look over, it's typically not a well-adjusted individual over there. <laughs> they usually look angry like, and you think, I don't want to look at them or else this could be trouble. They, they're, they're sending out their signal. They're, they're not happy folks. They do, they do seem like dangerous fellas. Yeah, and like Mr. Malone brings out uh, in that, I think he had, he's probably had more than one article, but I'm thinking of one in particular. He, he does make very clear it's not just a matter of only listening to classical music. You have to consider uh, the words and if they are uplifting uh, the beat, if the beat is just overpowering the whole song, then it might, it might be a little bit too much. And then it could be the fastest or the slowest music imaginable, but as long as it is generally uplifting, uh, that is the, the focus of how, or at least it should be our focus when we're choosing what music to listen to. You know, I've, I've experienced myself uh, something where occasionally if I'm ill, uh, which thankfully it doesn't happen too often, but uh, with like a stomach ailment of some kind, and if I'm just kind of laying there uh, and if I turn the TV on or something to pass the time or maybe music, usually it's TV, I guess, depending on the sound, it affects the way I feel. I've noticed that when I'm sick in particular. When I'm healthy, I don't notice it as much. But if I'm not feeling well, certain things, I don't know what it is. It could just be a commercial or something about it. And I say, ah, I can't listen. Like, that's making me feel sick. And something else will come on and makes me feel better. And I notice that when I'm sick. So I don't know if that's the same sort of thing. But something about the sound that I'm hearing is affecting me at those times. I've noticed the same thing. Like, s- certain uh, jingles in commercials can be particularly jarring if if you happen to be sick and and then you know you're going to have it stuck in your head for the next couple of days which makes it even worse so that that's not necessarily something you want to be hearing when you're not feeling well but if there's some sort of uh like more peaceful music or at least not two people shouting at each other that that might that might not help too much either, then then you could probably benefit from hearing something that uh, would uplift you, at least. Yeah, the power of sounds is really fascinating how that uh, that affects people, so learning more about that. But uh, the Bible says from uh, years ago that, that uh, good music was effective, where it helped Saul. And they knew it, too. They said, we need to go find somebody that's uh, you know, a cunning player on the harp. Like, they knew that. And I just, you know, you have to wonder, well, how did they know that? They must have known a fair bit about the way that music would work and so forth. And if you look at King David, ultimately, when he became king, his kingdom, uh, much emphasis on music, a lot of emphasis on good music. And uh, they knew a lot about how it helped people. Yeah, and King David knew a lot about um, what is now called Irish dance. I don't know what it was called back then, but similar similar dance to that. And, and he just was one who would dance in the streets in front of the entire nation and then they would be encouraged to dance along with him that's that's the kind of musical joyful person he was so you think you can dance <laughs> uh i just noticed by the way you have a pin on your jacket so that's okc thunder pin yes you're, you're representing the home team i'm still i'm still on a high after their rousing victory last night is that new uh it's it's from uh, the first game of the season they just oh. gave it out oh. for free 
Well, yeah. that's neat. Huh. Well, that's cool. It's always nice when you get get something for free and it's not a t-shirt that's eight sizes too big. <laughs> so true. Which is every, <laughs> yeah, every t-shirt they give away at those stadiums. Um, coming up today on the uh, trumpet.com, make sure you stop and check out the top story, transgender children's books encouraged in UK schools. Oh, brother. Primary schools in the UK will include books about transgenderism in their curriculum. Well, that's going to be so confusing for those kids. It's uh, sad to see. It's amazing, too, because there's such a, there was such an uproar over the last few years about certain classics as they were in libraries, you know, saying, well, they, they were racist or they were, you know, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer and all that. And, uh, but here now they're, they're throwing in these uh, other books there about uh, transgender. It, it's, they're making it out like it's something that's very popular and it's always been around. It's very fringe and it's very odd, of course. And, uh, uh, but they're trying to push it off like it's the new normal for these uh, small children. That's similar to something Mr. Joel Hilliker wrote about in one of those trumpet briefs the other day about the new morality and how that might scorn books like uh, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, those those types of characters in those books, and, and say that they were racist. But then they re- replaced those types of books with like the most weird perversions possible. Transgenderism is a confusion of your own gender, which then obviously it's going to lead to other sexual perversions as well. I mean, even those books that they're reading, it's like a crayon labeled red, but can only draw blue. And you just have to accept that this is a blue crayon, not a red crayon. It's just absurd that that is the type of things that we, we think we should be teaching our children in, in the place of something that was written by Mark Twain. Yeah, so confusing. So confusing for those kids. How do you even keep up with a standard like that? I mean, just to say one thing, uh, an American literature classic is now off limits, but then to introduce sexual perversion to children who are as young as three years old is somehow okay. It just warps the mind, and it's impossible to understand where that standard uh, really is coming from or what it could produce in the future. Yeah, it's uh, really it's institutionalizing child abuse. I mean, if you if you just oh you don't have to go that far back ten years ago, if you found your neighbor giving your kids some books to look at, you say what is this? You know that would be a problem. But now they want the kids to to look at it all. So yeah, really really uh, interesting times. And uh, that's a write up at thetrumpet dot com. And there's a good related story to that as well. Uh, they're about how a lot of it is just flat out child abuse. Uh, Trumpet Daily Radio Show today with your host Stephen Flurry. Make sure you listen for that. Uh, talked a lot and played a lot of clips from President Trump's uh, speech yesterday, talking about America and some of the things they hope to accomplish. Uh, and it had some great points. Really, a well done speech. Uh, but in the end, uh, of course, it failed to get to the cause of America's past greatness and how to really become great again. You know, he had he he's very good. President Trump is very good at identifying problems and then identifying you know ways to maybe improve things uh so i mean really outstanding in a lot of ways but it doesn't get back to why was america great and then how would we be great again and it's missing that element that president lincoln brought into things which was god and we don't hear about that today mr trump has given some impressively eloquent speeches but you're absolutely right um the focus isn't on who is going to make the country great again, which is God. It's the, the focus is on the greatness of the American people. You know, if the American people could just get uh, some more jobs and a little more stability and, and harken back to a time when the, the families were stronger, uh, then we'll be great again. And it's almost like it's totally all 
uh, contingent upon the people and not upon the God who is ruling over us. Yeah, so uh, it's a really interesting show, and and, the, and again, some really uh, good clips from that speech as well. Uh, it is, you have to admit, it is a breath of fresh air to hear the leader of the U.S. not apologizing for the United States. Now, there are things that we should be apologizing for and changing, but uh, not uh, not the blessings that we were given. It's just uh, the actions of the people that we need to be thinking about. But it is nice to have somebody not just kowtow to the rest of the world. Very true. A lot of these speeches are just about as good as you could ask for on a, a physical human level. Um, he's even been compared to Ronald Reagan in, in past speeches telling uh, Gorbachev to tear down that wall and, th- and things like that. Um, so he, he has really uh, sparked a lot of pride in many Americans. But again, if it's all about self-reliance, it just doesn't go anywhere. You, that's that's the aspect that the Trumpet.com sees and, and brings out for, for anyone who is willing to look into it. Yeah, check uh, the Trump Daily out today. Also, today is the 19th of December. Here's a couple of historical notes. 1941 on this day, Adolf Hitler takes complete command of the German army. That should resonate a lot because Germany, again, is talking about a military. Matter of fact, on the Trumpet.com, you can look at uh, This Week in Germany video where the uh, subject is Germany signs up to military pact, sets sights on Jerusalem. And so Germany is uh, doing a lot with the military now and, and, and this military pact, as it talks about. And uh might be good to put the brakes on. Think about what happened last time. Germany was involved with the military and had a military. Uh, you may remember that as World War II. Yeah, and some of the German leaders recently have just displayed a disgusting level of arrogance. And just they've been so quick to pounce on President Trump for his declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, something that any clear-headed, sane-minded person would agree with. But they say, oh, yep, this disqualifies America from mediating the peace process. We'll step in. We'll we'll get right in there and we'll take the place of America. They just don't even acknowledge how much America has held their hand and helped them over the past 70 years. Where's the gratitude? Why does America even waste any time helping these nations that just basically turn around and spit in our face? They're uh, definitely going their own direction now, that's for sure. So uh, that's an interesting video there at thetrumpet.com to check out uh, this week in Germany. And, of course, that's a a weekly feature. Uh, One other historical note before we get into talking about history and prophecy of the Middle East. This one's just one of those ones where you read it and you're like, how could that have happened? But uh, it did, apparently. Uh, (laughs) 1922 on this day, Teresa Vaughn, who was 24 at the time, confessed in court in Sheffield, England, to being married 61 times over five years in 50 cities in three countries with no divorces. <laughs> That's illegal, by the way. Can't do that. Well, that can you imagine the stress in her life trying to keep her many, many husbands from meeting each other? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I just, I can't. I tried to find more, like, what happened here, but I had a hard time with the details <laughs> on it. Like, how is that possible? What was she doing? Was, uh, in what, you know, can you imagine me one of those guys you find out later? Like, what? She was married? And they're like, oh, yeah, not not just one other guy. It was, it was 61 in total. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't even know. I don't even know what you would, uh, just don't know the backstory on that. But I thought, wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's uh, you know, how many how many marriages, uh, you know, per year? Boy, that would be, I don't know if she did them all, you know, equal each year, but 
Like, how would you go about finding people in, like, the whole courtship? And I mean, it's 1922, so it was a little more, well, I don't know. It seems like the morals would have been somewhat better than they are today, but I don't know. <laughs> it's very puzzling. Yeah, you could easily see that being uh, an excuse for promiscuity, like, at least if she's married to all of them. Right. I, I don't know if that was her reasoning or if she had some sort of mental illness that just made her obsessive in certain ways, but what... I mean, in a way, what an accomplishment to even pull that off. <laughs> yeah, I just I can't I can't even uh, can't wrap my head around it. But anyway, so that that happened in 1922, <laughs> apparently. So maybe there's more to the story than meets the eye. But that's uh, that's what happened there. Uh, but uh, actually, going off of the historical note about uh, 1941 and Hitler taking complete command of the German army, there's a it does tie in a lot to uh, what we're talking about today with history and prophecy of the Middle East. This is a free booklet at thetrumpet.com. And again, it, it goes through this longest vision, single vision in the Bible, Daniel 10, 10 through 12, 4. And it goes through this history of uh, some of the, the ruling empires there that would come on the world scene. Some of it's already happened, and it gets very specific about what would happen to Alexander the Great and how that would split into four kingdoms and with led by four generals and on and on. Lots of really uh, uh, amazing details that historically you can go back and see that's exactly what happened. And then it comes to our day today. And that's why it's so interesting, because the historical things have occurred, but there's more to occur yet, and that uh, has a lot to do with this new king of the north. And we talked just briefly about this yesterday, but just to recap, this is an introduction. Uh, there is uh, an important history recorded in Daniel 11 and verse 36. Antiochus Epiphanes, who we talked about yesterday, he went down to Egypt for the third time, and his forces were resisted by Roman ships. And Antiochus' Syria, uh, Syrian kingdom was on its last legs, and by 65 BC it was swallowed up by the Roman Empire, and the region became a Roman provenance. And that's the key point. The Roman emperor now controlled Judea, and so at this point forward in history, references to the king of the north are talking about the Roman Empire, and not Antiochus any longer. Uh, verse 36 is an apt description of Roman emperors who have historically done according to their own will, even exalting themselves above God. So you can go back and read that in Daniel 11. The king of the north is now this Roman empire. And so this prophecy then shifts to this end time and talks about uh, the uh, king of the south pushing at the king of the north in Daniel 11 and verse 40. So there's this battle that's coming upon the scene that hasn't happened yet. A king of the south pushing against a king of the north. And think about how how uh, instructive that that type of uh, understanding is to know that right before verse 40, it's talking about ancient fulfillment. And then it's almost like you travel forward in time, you teleport to the end time thousands of years later, and all of a sudden you're in the present day. If people didn't understand that, uh, and, and it, of course, it does say in the time of the end there that that is like uh, such a pivotal part of the entire prophecy to understand that we're talking about something that is yet to come. All this other stuff took place just as God said it would. He was in total control of that. But now we're talking about things that are going to happen soon. And God's going to be just as much in control of that, too. Yeah, right. The The historical evidence of the past should really bolster people's faith in these prophecies because what happened in the past 
is accurate. I mean, the Bible accurately predicted it before it happened, and then there's more to come. God is actually so much in control that he forced uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of that first empire, Babylon, to eat grass in the field for, what was it, seven years? Yeah. Like like he was an animal. Right. Uh, that's, that's the type of control that God has over these prophecies. He, that's how he's able to tell exactly how it's going to play out down to the specific leaders and who they're going to uh, go to war with. He knows all of that because he's in total command of what happens. Right. That's how those, he can very accurately prophesy. Self-fulfilling. Makes it happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Moffat uh, talks, begins verse 40 by saying, when the end arrives. So Daniel 11 and verse 40 there, where we shift to this end time at the time of the end, or as Moffat says, when the end arrives. So that's how you know you're, <laughs> we're in that time today. And at this point, the prophecy jumps way ahead to the time we are living in right now. And it brings us up to date with today's news. So as it goes on to talk about here, uh, you know, that gives the identity of the king of the north, which is this German-led European Union. King of the south is radical Islam led by Iran. Let the cat out of the bag there. (laughs) And uh, they're going to have this battle. And it talks about in Daniel 11, verse 40, this king of the south pushing at the king of the north. The king of the north comes with a massive force, a blitzkrieg, and it decimates that king of the south. Yeah, exactly. And this booklet is all about the history and prophecy of the Middle East. Iran is the king of the Middle East, and we've seen that only be more and more reinforced by recent events, such as uh, even America helping to defeat the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. The only thing that happened there was that uh, Iran just immediately has jumped in and and filled up the vacuum. They've had more influence uh, in the entire region in all these places that America has decided to evacuate, they have basically, America has lost its will to achieve any lasting success in the Middle East, and Iran just takes advantage of it every single time. It is quite pathetic that we would actually be helping them fulfill this prophecy and make them the king of the South. Yeah, you notice in verse 40 there that, you know, they push, and, uh, and which means to strike or wage war against, and of course it, it, that references violence, and uh, it's motivated by radical religion. So as much as um, some people want to say, well, look, <clears throat> all the religions can get along. Historically, there's violence between Islam and, and uh, uh, Catholicism in particular. And uh, you're going to see that happen again, very specifically. Radical religion, radical ideologies clashing. When each religion says the other is... is uh, you know, uh, a hopeless infidel, <laughs> uh, you're going to have violence there. You're going to have a clash. People, are, I'm sure the peacemakers are hoping that it won't happen, but the Bible says they're going to weep because these radical ideologies are not backing down from their stance, and the only way they solve it is through violence. Take a look at your headlines. Do you see that? Especially coming out of Islam, do you see radicalization? That's all you see. The deadly dangerous part of all that is that people today are trying to conflate criticism of Islam with racism. And they try to say that anyone who would ever try to denounce Islam being a religion of peace is just a bigot and a racist. You have to be able to acknowledge uh, what types of ideologies are the most dangerous. Like you also said, Catholicism historically has led to immense bloodshed and suffering. It's not just Islam. It's any ideology that creates trouble and you can judge by the fruits which ones are the most dangerous and they always clash it's always islam and 
Catholicism, which is false Christianity. It's not true Christianity. You can't brand all of the truth by just saying that the that the Catholics have uh, gone on crusades in the past. But the, every single time they clash, it's also seemingly with Jerusalem as the target. Both of them want to control that city, and that's also going to happen again. Yeah, they, I mean, we see that in the headlines today with uh, you know President Trump saying that they were gonna they're going to move the U.S. embassy there to the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. Boy, that sure gets people uh, angry, very fired up about it. And and who who is who have been the loudest critics? Well, certainly Islam, but. But uh, Germany's been critical. The EU's been critical. The Pope has said things. Sure. So you can see these two different uh, religious ideologies that are going to clash. And uh, the nations around the Holy Land, for the most part, are Islamic. It is this great power fast becoming a force to be reckoned with, which is that king of the south, of course, as we mentioned. Most notable among the rising tide of radical Islam is Iran, which since the end of the Iran-Iraq War in 1988 has accumulated massive military might. It is considered the world's number one sponsor of terrorism, and with the support of many other Islamic nations like Iraq, Algeria, and of course they pretty much uh, own Iraq now, uh, and, and Libya, Iran will be able to deliver a formidable push against the king of the north. But as you see there, as you go through Daniel 11 and 40 and 41 and 42 and so on, uh, the king of the north comes like a whirlwind, it says, absolutely decimates that king of the south, including Egypt. They don't escape. And uh, you uh, you can see that they're it prophesied here that that uh, the king of the south's pushy foreign policy, which has worked to this point, is going to be stopped. But it's not stopped through diplomacy or making a deal or talking. Uh, the king of the north knows how to stop it, and they stop it with military force, overwhelming military might. And the Trumpet.com has monitored Europe slowly getting to this point where they they want to produce a common army under the control of Germany. It's just a matter of them getting pushed to the brink and then realizing that we have to stop uh, Islam from advancing and, and tearing apart our nations. I mean, look at the refugee crisis that is stirring up a lot of anger in many of these European countries, especially in Germany. Uh, these these types of issues are stirred up by Iran because look at what Iran has done uh, in in Syria, supporting Bashar Assad and that massacre of his own people and causing so many of the refugees to go over there to Germany. The Germans see that, and all it takes for them is one strong leader, and, and once again they will be on the warpath. Well, and they know too that, I mean, obviously they have, in Europe they have a, an immigration problem uh, from from Islamic nations. But they're also, I'm sure, very aware of the fact that Iran is far along in their nuclear program, aided by what the Ob- the um, Obama administration did. And so, I mean, at some point, you look at like a, a rogue nation like a North Korea, you look at an Iran, which Iran is, is worse because they have this radical ideology that calls for destruction, where North Korea is just a despot that wants to, you know, rule and, and make some noise out there. Just delusional and thinks yeah. he's God. It's not a matter of bringing about their version of the Messiah. Right. And so, you know, but you look at those nations and in, in Iran and you think, okay, well, at some point, somebody's going to use those weapons. I mean, we've been in an era where people of nations like the U.S. and Russia and, and others have had those weapons, but they haven't used them yet uh, outside of World War II. 
But now you've got these rogue regimes. You've got this Iran, which is a terrorist nation. They they want and they call for the death of the West. They call for the death of Israel. And but ultimately, they don't stop there. They they want the death of Europe. They they want the death of uh, the religion in Europe because they want to rule the religion and of the world. And so. The clear thinking people that aren't delusional know that there is not peace on the horizon with these forces. There's there's war coming and it. Again, it does uh, center around these two powers, the king of the north and the king of the south. So true. And Europe knows that it can't just sit around and let Iran get much stronger. It isn't to the point that it can uh, start bombing all of Europe yet. But we know that that is their unshakable goal. They want to bomb everybody, especially Israel, especially America. But Europe it comes in close at the top of the list. Uh, whenever you are faced with threats like that, you have to respond decisively. And whenever Europe truly unites, whenever it's truly monetarily, uh, economically, militarily, politically united, it's the biggest power in the whole world it's bigger than any one nation and we we see in prophecy that only russia and china coming together could actually stop them right that's what daniel indicates as you continue through his prophecy the king of the north defeats this king of the south enters into the glorious land or jerusalem and the hebrew word for enter there indicates a peaceful entry so they're a lot like antiochus here where they deceive. They come in peacefully. We're going to keep the peace here. So when you see uh, the European Union and Germany talking about playing a role in the peace process in the Middle East, these prophecies should come to mind. This king of the north will eventually conquer all the end-time nations of Israel, and you can learn about those, of course, with the United States and Britain in prophecy. But then, as you just mentioned, in verse 44 of Daniel 11, it says, Tidings out of the east and the north are going to trouble that king of the north. And uh, he's going to go out to have uh, violence and to destroy. And it's that same battle that always pops up where you have that European Union, German-led against Russia and China and their allies. And uh, those are the two massive armies and the powers that are going to be left to try to take over the world. That's what is building, and you can see it in the headlines today. Like we mentioned yesterday, the reference point is Jerusalem. So it's pretty obvious that when you go east and north of there, you're coming upon uh, China and Russia, and that's going to be just an unbelievable force because uh, they're finally gravitating toward each other and not having suspicion against each other and canceling each other out. They finally want to work together because they see America weakening. They see Europe getting to the point where they're going to get fed up with things and, and want to unite. And so Russia and China know that they could absolutely dominate if they finally just agree to work together. We have a great book on Russia and China and prophecy, and uh, there's a lot of people there. The Bible talks about a 200 million man army. Uh, there's a lot of lot of individuals there. But there is good news at the end of this uh, vision. Uh, if you go into Daniel 12 and verse 1, and again, it's all one vision here. It says, uh, notice that these events lead to, they lead to, uh, as it says in the Bible here, at, at the time, and at that time shall Michael stand up the great prince which stands for the children of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book. And the great tribulation leads to God protecting his people in a place of protection. And so that's part of that same prophecy there as well. And, of course, it ultimately ends with the return of Christ, putting an end to all the violence and all the wars and establishing a true religion, God's true religion again. 
But as uh, this booklet points out, History and Prophecy of the Middle East, this is the point here when you look at this long vision. Most of this vision, Daniel uh, 10 through 12 there, as we have already noted, was fulfilled to a T with very specific examples after the book of Daniel was recorded. So what does that mean for us as readers? Doesn't it mean that the remaining unfulfilled details of this vision are sure and they will happen? Well, of course they will. And so when you look at this booklet, which gets into details there, History and Prophecy of the Middle East gets into details about this vision in in, uh, Daniel 10.10 through 12.4, it should really bolster your faith in God's Word, but also then give us an indication of what's going to happen in the future, which has a hopeful end. But you can look at what's already happened and know for sure that what's remaining, what hasn't happened yet, is going to happen as well. And it's so important to keep the focus on the hope in all of this because it, it can be pretty hard to see that when you know that World War Three comes before it. And, and World War Three is something pretty hard to overlook when it's going to be by far the worst suffering in human history. But there are a couple elements of hope. Uh, in Daniel 12, verse 1, it says that the people who are obeying God today, before all that happens, actually get protected from all of that suffering entirely in a separate place of safety. And then beyond that, even those who do suffer in World War III get a chance to be under the rule of God and his perfect kingdom. They get to be healed. They get to be instructed in the right way to live. They get to live happily ever after. That's not even just a fairy tale. That's actually what's going to happen. Yeah, History and Prophecy of the Middle East. It's a free booklet. It's at thetrumpet.com. Lots of great material to look at there. And of course, if you're following the story flow, you might think, well, what about the United States, though? <laughs> what are they doing, or what is the U.K. doing at this time? Well, there's other literature to fill in uh, the gaps on that as well. And uh, make sure you, you check out uh, all of it. You can get it at thetrumpet.com. Uh, there's a literature section there, and you can go through all the different uh, books and booklets that will tie all this together for you, give you a, a full picture of what to expect. But this one, History and Prophecy of the Middle East, it's a, it's a great one. It doesn't take too long to get through. A lot of great history there uh, about Daniel 10, 10 through 12, verse 4. So check that out at the uh, trumpet.com. That's all the time we have for today on Trumpet Radio Live. Make sure this is for the Key David program and the Trumpet Daily Radio Show coming up here in just a bit. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Falk, have a great rest of your Tuesday. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.